This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. It just so happens that I find myself speaking into a microphone on Friday the 13th. In this case, it's August 13th. And I gather that tomorrow is comic book day around the nation. No, I had no idea there was such a thing as comic book day, but there is. Supposedly started back in 2001 when a man named Joe Field was sitting at his desk in the Flying Colors comic and other cool stuff store in Concord. He was trying to write a column for an industry trade magazine. He said, I was on deadline. I didn't have anything, but he looked out the window and saw a line in front of the store. But they weren't coming into his store. They were lined up for Baskin-Robbins. Apparently, it was free scoop night at Baskin-Robbins. And no, we didn't know that that was a thing either. Anyway, apparently looked out and thought, free scoop night? Well, what's cooler than ice cream? Comics. We could do that too. Now, yours truly has not read comic books since he was in junior high. But I can tell you that back in the day, I, I did favor Superman and Batman. And although I was too young to catch the original airplay of the Adventures of Superman, I, uh, I was right on time when Batman showed up. And that's going to translate into some fun real soon. We like to do a little bit of research before we open our mouths on various subjects. Well, generally we do. So not having looked into the matter of what happened to Andrew Cuomo, I think I should say as little as possible. Except to note that I don't understand why it is that when Democratic or liberal politicians get in trouble for allegations of inappropriate touching, they wind up resigning from office. Or, or, or folks like Garrison Keillor. Do you think of Garrison Keillor as a sexual predator? Meanwhile, we have a sitting president not too long ago who was credibly accused of rape. When these sorts of things come up to Republican politicians, their response is generally, so, and I've noticed that they generally don't resign. So I guess if I was the kind of person that had no scruples whatsoever and no moral compass whatsoever, and I wanted to take a job as a political operative, believe you me, I'd sign on with the Republicans. I would then work really hard to stir up accusations about my political opponents because, hell, you do that, and sometimes they get kicked out of office. Okay, I've already said too much. I, I don't know the particulars in the Cuomo case. I don't know the merits of the accusations that have been leveled against him. Perhaps they are all genuine, and perhaps they are all serious. I just don't know. However, watching the general flow of things over the last few years leaves me uh, a little distressed. But oddly enough, that leads me to a, an obituary, in this case a political one, the passing of the roguish governor of Louisiana, Edwin Edwards. He was a three-term Louisiana congressman and a four-term governor. He was a populist who, ch who championed the disadvantaged and promoted racial inclusion. He filled Louisiana state coffers by revamping oil taxation and improved its social services. But... He was also a known gambler and womanizer who played fast and loose with government ethics. Asked once about accepting illegal campaign contributions, he said, they were illegal to give, but not for me to accept. 
And most famously, he issued a line which has become, I think, a, a classic of American politics. He once famously remarked that he was bulletproof unless caught in bed with, quote, a dead girl or a live boy, end quote. He was a congressman back in the 1960s and won his first term as governor in 1972, and he was easily reelected. There were term limits in Louisiana back then, so he had to take a hiatus, but he returned in 1984. A year later, he was indicted on racketeering charges, but acquitted, after a trial that included testimony about cash-stuffed suitcases. Edwards won his fourth and final term in 1991, running against the imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, David Duke. Naturally, Edwards had a quip. I'm sure he had many, but here's one I like. He said, well, referring to David Duke, we're both wizards under the sheets. And he portrayed himself as the lesser of two evils, which he surely was. Read one of his campaign stickers, Vote for the Crook. It's important. I remember back at that time, America's foremost political comic, Will Durst, took a look at the Louisiana vote and observed that 4% of the black population in Louisiana actually voted for David Duke, prompting, prompting Durst to ask, Who are these people? He'd been out of office for four years when the law finally caught up with him. But noted the New Orleans advocate, following his release from prison, Edwards enjoyed renewed popularity. Political clubs invited him to speak, men clapped him on the back, and women asked him for a kiss. He married for the third time to a woman 51 years his junior and had a son when he was 85. He said, people realize that public officials are human and we have our faults. And if we don't try to be hypocritical or sanctimonious about it, I think they'll forgive us for it. And the story involving political renegades that's just a whole lot less funny, we have this regarding Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, who said last week at a Tennessee GOP fundraiser that if he was to be sworn in as Speaker of the House, assuming the 2022 midterm elections turn the House to the GOP, he said it would be hard not to hit Speaker Nancy Pelosi with a gavel. Apparently, someone among the 1,400 knucklehead guests uh, presented him with an oversized gavel that said, Fire Pelosi. Said Pelosi's deputy chief of staff, Drew Hamill, a threat of violence to someone who was the target of the January 6th assassination attempt from your fellow Trump supporters is irresponsible and disgusting. Meanwhile, a McCarthy aide said he was obviously joking. Last month, after McCarthy said Pelosi's renewed mask mandate in the House meant Democrats, quote, want to live in perpetual pandemic state, unquote, said Pelosi, he's such a moron. Anyway, since we just did one obituary, let's do another. We, we know it with sadness, the passing of Dusty Hill. And if the name doesn't ring a bell, you know who he is. Think bass player with a long beard, alongside guitarist with a long beard, playing with drummer without a beard. Respectively, Dusty Hill, Billy Gibbons, and Frank Beard, known as ZZ Top. <laughs> it's hard not to take in some of ZZ Top's more colorful videos and, and not chuckle while you enjoy the music. I think my personal favorite might be Velcro Fly. But I think everybody enjoys their first hit back in 1973, which I think is still their signature piece. Mr. McMillan. Yeah, Mr. Millen says he especially enjoys the lyrics on that one. 
But no, we're sorry he's gone, but apparently ZZ Top will continue with longtime roadie Elwood Francis playing bass in Dusty's stead. Anyway, I, looking at what I've got in front of me, it looks like I'm, I'm falling into a pile of obituaries. I've fallen and I can't get up. In this case, um, two political leaders. In this case, a, a black gentleman from Africa, of whom I think we need to be rather positive about, and a white one from America, who we don't have too much good to say about. The black political leader was Kenneth Kaunda of Zambia, who passed away last month. He was described as a giant in the fight for African liberation. The former school teacher became the first president of Zambia in 1964 after leading the campaign to free what was then northern Rhodesia from British rule. In the 27 years that he led the new country, he worked to promote self-rule across southern Africa, rallying international support and allowing black nationalists fighting in Zimbabwe, South Africa, and other countries to use Zambia as an operational base. He was an iron-fisted leader who was humble and gentle in person, an autocrat who rejected violence and cried so easily in public that a white handkerchief became his trademark. The Economist said that the economy foxed and frustrated him. Zambia was fundamentally rich with huge reserves and exports of copper that paid for all of Kaunda's social improvements. But if he was truly to eliminate all classes and close the gaps between rich and poor, which was his goal, he had to bend the economy to his will like everything else. So he nationalized the copper mines, froze miners' wages, and also froze prices, only to find that his policies discouraged farmers from planting and mining firms from investing. Then in 1974, copper prices fell off a cliff. And Zambia soon became one of the world's most indebted nations. I visited the country in 1988 briefly, basically, you know, a couple of trips inside from, from Zimbabwe. Spent an afternoon, maybe two, across the border. It did remind me of what I would see in the Soviet Union a few years later. Stores that were open, but shelves that were bare. I remember going into one fabric store and noted that what they had to sell appeared to be material of heavy wool that might be appropriate to make a Scottish kilt out of, but probably wouldn't play very well in subtropical Africa. One can say this about him, he tried. And he did gain, I think, a, a position in um, Africa's Hall of Fame by doing something highly unusual for a leader on the continent. When in 1991 he lost Zambia's first open election, he stepped down. And that is something we feel we must give him a thumbs up for. In fact, two thumbs up. The white politician, to whom we're going to give two thumbs down, would be Donald Rumsfeld. I'll include my two thumbs so we can give him four thumbs down. Fair enough. Rumsfeld was born in Evanston, Illinois, to successful real estate parents. He earned a scholarship to Princeton, where he evidently was captain of the wrestling and football teams. After a stint as a Navy fighter pilot, he won a long-shot bid in 1962 for a House of Representatives seat in an affluent Chicago suburb. He formed a group of aggressive young lawmakers dubbed Rumsfeld's Raiders and easily won three more terms. Richard Nixon admiringly called Rumsfeld a ruthless little bastard and naturally hired him after he won the presidency. As head of Nixon's Office of Economic Opportunity, Rumsfeld pared the anti-poverty program down sharply, said the Times of London. Then, having rankled Nixon's top aides, he was dispatched to Brussels as ambassador to NATO in 1973, which did leave him untainted when the full fury of the Watergate scandal broke. 
Gerald Ford named Rumsfeld as his presidential chief of staff, then defense secretary, where he clashed with Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. Rumsfeld was able to foil a major arms control deal with the Soviet Union. Can we find some more thumbs to put down? After Ford's 1976 election defeat, Rumsfeld went into business as a pharmaceutical and tech executive, naturally. He made millions of dollars from his role in development of NutraSuite and High Def TV. And unfortunately for this country and the world, he again became Secretary of Defense during the second Bush administration, where he was able to dismiss a request from his top generals for a 480,000 strong Iraq invasion force. He called it odd thinking, and he capped the maximum deployment at 125,000 troops. Although Baghdad fell in three weeks, the occupying force was too small to restore order. And so things like the looting of the Iraqi National Museum took place, to which Rumsfeld responded with, well, stuff happens. Rumsfeld's Pentagon officials said that the chaos in Iraq was fueled by the defense secretary's decision to disband Iraqi's army, which left 300,000 men jobless. Many, of course, went on to then join ISIS. In 2004, he told army reservists who were complaining about the lack of armor in their transport vehicles that you go to war with the army you have. And, of course, when he was asked about the notorious failure to find Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction, Rumsfeld insisted that, quote, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. George W. Bush resisted calls to fire Rumsfeld, despite his obvious incompetence. But after Republicans suffered a drubbing in the 2006 midterm elections, as the war had been dragging on with little sign of progress, Rumsfeld was finally sacked, and he largely disappeared from public life. The Economist also took note of how Rumsfeld uh, long dealt with his, um, his longtime enemy, the press, when he was asked why it was uh, they'd seemed to be blind to conditions on the ground in Iraq, Rumsfeld said, there are known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. It's been noted by some that among his favorite quotations was one from Al Capone, who noted, you'll get more with a kind word and a gun than with a kind word alone. Anyway, Donald Rumsfeld, dead at 89. Who knows where he is now? Thank you, Mr. Millen, for the Squirrel Nut Zippers rendition of Hell. Let's get out of obituaries and into something a little more fun. Uh, in this case, I think the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week a couple of weeks back for sedate music after health officials in Seoul, South Korea banned gyms from playing music with a tempo faster than 120 beats per minute on the grounds that such music inspires gym goers to exercise and breathe harder, which they felt raised the risk of spreading COVID. 
It was, on the other hand, a bad week this past week for American tourists after a group of them failed to recognize Queen Elizabeth II when they ran into her near Balmoral, her Scottish estate. One tourist asked Elizabeth if she'd ever met the Queen. No, she replied, but this policeman has, gesturing at a member of her security detail. And it was an ugly week recently for the sexualization of everything with the news that a two-year-old girl had been expelled from a private daycare center in Vermont after staff complained she was dressed provocatively. Brianna Adams said PJ's childcare told her that daughter Kenzie's spaghetti-style shoulder straps were inappropriate. In a Facebook post, Adams complained that the center had engaged in the sexualization of my child. Kenzie was disenrolled the next day with management citing a lack of parental cooperation. And as far as Radio Parallax has been able to determine, this had nothing to do with Andrew Cuomo. And we do have to note that it was both a bad and ugly week for opportunists recently with the news that a British man had 10,000 t-shirts printed to support singer Britney Spears in her battle to end her legal conservatorship. Unfortunately for entrepreneur Carl Baxter, the shirts say, and I will spell it out, pound symbol Free Britney, B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y, which of course is a province in France. This does remind us of the incident uh, a couple decades ago when a similar entrepreneur in New York printed up t-shirts to commemorate the visit of the Pope. I believe it was the visit of the Pope to Cuba, and they were printed up for the Spanish language audience. The entrepreneur evidently did not speak Spanish and thus did not realize that when he <laughs> noted on the t-shirt in Spanish that I saw La Papa instead of El Papa, what he was actually saying was not I saw the Pope, but in fact I saw the potato. Anyway, for the rest of this segment, let's take a a trip back into technology, one of our our favorite subjects, usually to be horrified by. And here's some reason to be horrified. Apparently, AI-guided combat drones have now been used in a swarm attack for the first time. This was in Gaza. New science was reported last month that during operations in Gaza last May, the Israeli Defense Forces reportedly used a swarm of small drones to locate, identify, and attack Hamas militants. This is thought to be the first time a drone swarm has been used in combat. Drones are usually controlled individually by remote operators, but a swarm is a single networked entity that flies itself using artificial intelligence. It can cover a wide area and keep operating even if it loses many units. It only requires a single human operator to direct it to its target. According to local media reports, the drones were supplied by Elbit Systems which produces Thor, a 9-kilogram quadrotor drone that is reportedly almost silent, along with other specialist drones that can land and provide persistent observation or deliver explosives. The magazine reports Arthur Holland at the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research in Geneva 
agreeing that this is potentially significant. He said, quote, the systems used in this case probably fall quite short of the large dynamic intelligence swarms that could someday have a highly disruptive effect on welfare. But if confirmed, there's certainly a notch up in the incremental growth of autonomy and machine-to-machine collaboration in warfare. The concern, notes the magazine, is that larger, more capable, and more autonomous swarms will inevitably follow. Many other nations, including the U.S. and China, are also working on swarms of small armed drones. And the IDF is planning to expand its drone operations. There's a plan to equip various land units with additional swarms, said an IDF spokesperson. The Wig Magazine took a look at drones in its June 25th issue. They focused mainly, in this case, on drone aircraft versus these small copters we're just talking about. They did note that it was 20 years ago, in October of 2001, that the first targeted strike by a remotely piloted drone aircraft took place in Afghanistan. A CIA Predator drone blasted a Hellfire missile at a compound housing Taliban leader Mullah Omar. It missed and destroyed a nearby vehicle, killing several bodyguards. They note that while drones such as the Predator are armed with missiles, a new generation of low-cost kamikaze drones are flown into their targets and then explode. Pentagon officials worry that the spread of these cheap and deadly effective drones could help shift the global strategic balance away from the United States. China's gotten into the drone business and is a top exporter. At least 10 countries, including Nigeria and the United Arab Emirates, have used Chinese-made drones to kill adversaries. Turkey's also emerged as a drone powerhouse. Don't worry, though. The Pentagon's busy trying to develop anti-drone drones. We hope these work better than their anti-missile missiles. Another bad news, according to Vice.com, the inevitable weaponization of app data is now upon us. A piece by Joseph Cox says, quote, It finally happened. After years of warning from researchers, journalists, and even governments, someone used highly sensitive location data from a smartphone app to track and publicly harass a specific person. In this case, Catholic Substack publication The Pillar said it used location data ultimately tied to Grinder, to trace the movements of a priest and then outed him publicly as potentially gay without his consent. This news starkly demonstrates not only the inherent power of location data, but how the chance to wield that power has trickled down from corporations and intelligence agencies to essentially any sort of disgruntled, unscrupulous, or dangerous individual. A growing market of data brokers that collect and sell data from countless apps has made it, that, has made it so that anyone with a bit of cash and effort can figure out which phone in a so-called anonymized database belongs to a target and abuse that information. Anybody else uh, check that data that your phone can send you every month if you ask for it, showing you where you've been? I think I'm going to start putting my, my phone in a Faraday cage of some sort. Not, of course, that I do or have done anything illegal at any time. Something I'm sure is also true of you, my dear listener. And how about this for the tech industry and, its, its, uh, and, and the hubris, I think you'd say, of some of its participants. Actually, I'm not sure in this case the person we're referring to is a tech person. The man's name is Faisal Zirawi. But then again, as I read this, it reread this, it notes that he recently did develop virtual reality software that allows people to experience life in a space capsule. So yeah, he's a tech guy. The New York Times quoted him last month as saying, I've never set limits on what I can learn. 
So when he stumbled on an article in a French newspaper last December saying that no one had ever solved two ciphers attributed to the Zodiac Killer, he thought, why not me? There's a whole community out there dedicated to studying the Zodiac Killer case. The Zodiac Killer is almost certainly dead by now. But uh, people are obsessed with trying to figure out who he was. There are four ciphers that he submitted to the media, coded messages. Now, word about codes. The longer the code, or longer the coded message, the easier it is to crack. If it's really short, well, even sophisticated computers cannot run through the combinations and figure out what it is. The first message that was uh, put in code was cracked early on. It was 408 characters, and I guess was, was fairly easy to, to solve. Uh, but it took until last December for uh, a team of three hobbyists, these are cryptologists, to solve the second cipher, which comprised 340 characters. It took 51 years, but they used a code-breaking program that ran through 650,000 possible solutions before finding the encryption key. That message provided no clues about the killer's identity. That left two unsolved codes, one 32 characters long and one of just 13 characters, but it was preceded by the words, my name is, then 13 characters. Now, most people think that these are both too short to be solved, but Faisal Zirawi took a look at the one that they solved last December and said, oh, what if it's the same cipher key? Now comes the part of the story that I really like. Zirawi said he applied that key to the 32-character cipher, which supposedly revealed the location of a bomb set off to go off in a school in the fall of 1970. It it never did, although the police, you know, never did obviously crack the code. But Mr. Zirawi, after spending a whole two weeks on it, says he deciphered the sentence, Labor Day, find 45.069 North, 53.719 West. (laughs) which supposedly referred to the coordinates on planet Earth based not on the Earth's familiar geographic coordinates, but on the Earth's magnetic field. After making that adjustment, the sequence came up near the location of a school in South Lake Tahoe, a city in California referred to in another postcard, which is believed, believed to have been sent by the Zodiac Killer in 1971. An excited Zarawi, then he immediately turned to the Z-13 cipher. After spending a whole hour on it, he said he came up with K-A-Y-R, which he realized resembled the last name of Lawrence K, spelled K-A-Y-E, a salesman and career criminal living in South Lake Tahoe, who had been a suspect in the case. Zarawi reasoned that the typo was similar to ones found in previous ciphers. Likely errors made when the killer encoded the message, he said. The result was so close to Kay's name, and the South Lake Tahoe location was too much to be, and of course the South Lake Tahoe location were thought to be too much of a coincidence for him. So on January 3rd, he posted a message saying, My name is Kay, on a 50,000-member Reddit forum dedicated to the Zodiac Killer. The message was deleted within 30 minutes. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> K-A-Y-R. Well, there was a guy named K-A-Y-E that was a suspect. It must have been him. At any rate, cryptographer Remy Girard from the École Normand Superficiale noted that Zerawi had made arbitrary choices in his work. 
The leader of the team that had cracked the 340-character cipher said in a written exchange that he was skeptical of Zarawi's solution, noting that hundreds of proposals for the Z13 and Z32 solutions already exist, and it's practically impossible to determine if any of them are correct because of their brevity. Zarawi decided he didn't want to play anymore in regards to solving Zodiac Killer ciphers, but did say that my brother would tell me, bro, what you just did here is pretty much the easy part. The most difficult thing is to convince people. And yes, this does remind me of a somewhat parallel case of someone coming up with what might be a solution and finding some skepticism in the research community. I refer in this case to the recent issuance of the book Last Second in Dallas by author Josiah Thompson. He's come up with this correspondent thinks is a very credible explanation for what actually took place in Dealey Plaza back on November 22, 1963. And perhaps in the weeks and months to come, this program will look into that controversy. We have uh, uh, good friends of this program on both sides of the issue of whether Thompson has cracked the case. I don't mind telling you that I'm on the side that says he probably has. But the odd thing about this case is that people seem to accept uh, data that is completely at odds with itself. Meaning that if A is true, B cannot be true, and yet <laughs> a lot of folks are saying, well, we think in this case, you know, you got to take a look at A and B. And doggone it, that is all I have to say on that subject today. Let's, uh, let's, let's take a break. We need one. Listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett.